Part four of Mud Fog and Other Sketches by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Newfeld. The Pantomime of Life. Before we plunge headlong into this paper, let us at once confess to a fondness for pantomimes, to a gentle sympathy with clowns and pantaloons to an unqualified admiration of harlequins and columbines, to a chaste delight in every action of their brief existence, varied and many-coloured as those actions are, and inconsistent though they occasionally be with those rigid and formal rules of propriety which regulate the proceedings of meaner and less comprehensive minds. We revel in pantomimes, not because they dazzle one's eyes with tinsel and gold leaf, not because they present to us once again the well-beloved chalked faces and goggle eyes of our childhood, not even because, like Christmas Day and Twelfth Night and Shrove Tuesday and one's own birthday, they come to us but once a year. Our attachment is founded on a graver and a very different reason. A pantomime is to us a mirror of life, nay, more. We maintain that it is so to audiences generally, although they are not aware of it, and that this very circumstance is the secret cause of their amusement and delight. Let us take a slight example. The scene is a street. An elderly gentleman, with a large face and strongly marked features, appears. His countenance beams with a sunny smile, and a perpetual dimple is on his broad red cheek. He is evidently an opulent elderly gentleman, comfortable in circumstances, and well-to-do in the world. He is not unmindful of the adornment of his person, for he is richly, not to say gaudily, dressed. And that he indulges to a reasonable extent in the pleasures of the table may be inferred from the joyous and oily manner in which he rubs his stomach, by way of informing the audience that he is going home to dinner. In the fullness of his heart, in the fancied security of wealth, in the possession and enjoyment of all good things of life, the elder gentleman suddenly loses his footing and stumbles. How the audience roar! He is set upon by a noisy and officious crowd, who buffet and cuff him unmercifully. They scream with delight. Every time the elder gentleman struggles to get up, his relentless persecutors knock him down again. The spectators are convulsed with merriment. And when at last the elder gentleman does get up and staggers away, despoiled of hats, wig, and clothing, himself battered to pieces, and his watch and money gone, they are exhausted with laughter, and express their merriment and admiration in rounds of applause. Is this like life? Change the scene to any real street, to the stock exchange, or the city bankers, or the merchant's counting-house, or even the tradesman's shop. See any one of these men fall, the more suddenly, and the nearer the zenith of his pride and riches, the better. What a wild hullow is raised over his prostrate carcass by the shouting mob! How they whoop and yell as he lies humbled beneath them! Mark how eagerly they set upon him when he is down, and how they mock and deride him as he slinks away. Why, it is the pantomime to the very letter! 
Of all the pantomimic dramatis personae, we consider the pantaloon the most worthless and debauched. Independent of the dislike one naturally feels at seeing a gentleman of his years engaged in pursuits highly unbecoming his gravity in time of life, we cannot conceal from ourselves the fact that he is a treacherous, worldly-minded old villain. Constantly enticing his younger companion, the clown, into acts of fraud and petty larceny, and generally standing aside to watch the result of the enterprise. If it be successful, he never forgets to return for his share of the spoil. But if it turn out a failure, he generally retires with remarkable caution and expedition, and keeps carefully aloof until the affair is blown over. His amorous propensities, too, are eminently disagreeable and his mode of addressing ladies in the open street at noonday is downright improper, being usually neither more nor less than a perceptible tickling of the aforesaid ladies in the waist, after committing which he starts back, manifestly ashamed, as well he may be, of his own indecorum and temerity, continuing, nevertheless, to ogle and beckon to them from a distance in a very unpleasant and immoral manner. Is there any man who cannot count a dozen pantaloons in his own social circle? Is there any man who has not seen them swarming at the west end of the town on a sunshiny day or a summer's evening, going through the last-named pantomimic feats with as much licorice energy and as total an absence of reserve as if they were on the very stage itself? We can tell upon our fingers a dozen pantaloons of our acquaintance at this moment capital pantaloons, who have been performing all kinds of strange freaks to the great amusement of their friends and acquaintance for years past, and who to this day are making such comical and ineffectual attempts to be young and dissolute that all beholders are like to die with laughter. Take that old gentleman who has just emerged from the Café de l'Europe in the Haymarket where he has been dining at the expense of the young man upon town with whom he shakes hands as they part at the door of the tavern. The affected warmth of that shake of the hand, the courteous nod, the obvious recollection of the dinner, the savoury flavour of which still hangs upon his lips, are all characteristics of his great prototype. He hobbles away, humming an opera tune, and twirling his cane to and fro, with affected carelessness. Suddenly he stops, tis at the milliner's window. He peeps through one of the large panes of glass, and, his view of the ladies within being obstructed by the India shawls, directs his attentions to the young girl with the bandbox in her hand, who is gazing in at the window also. See, he draws beside her. He coughs, she turns away from him. He draws near her again, she disregards him. He gleefully clucks her under the chin, and, retreating a few steps, nods and beckons with fantastic grimaces, while the girl bestows a contemptuous and supercilious look upon his wrinkled visage. She turns away with a flounce, and the old gentleman trots after her with a toothless chuckle. The Pantaloon to the Life but the closest resemblance which the clowns of the stage bear to those of everyday life is perfectly extraordinary. Some people talk with a sigh of the decline of pantomime, 
and murmur in low and dismal tones of the name of Grimaldi. We mean no disparagement to the worthy and excellent old man when we say that this is downright nonsense. Clowns that beat Grimaldi all to nothing turn up every day, and nobody patronizes them. More's the pity. I know who you mean, says some dirty-faced patron of Mr. Osbaldistone's, laying down the miscellany when he has got thus far, and bestowing upon vacancy at a most knowing glance. You mean C. J. Smith, as did Guy Fawkes and George Barnwell at the garden. The dirty-faced gentleman has hardly uttered the words when he is interrupted by a young gentleman in no shirt-collar and a Petersham coat. No, no, says the young gentleman, he means Brown, King, and Gibson at the Delphi. Now, oh, with great deference both to the first-named gentleman with the dirty face, and the last-named gentleman in the non-existing shirt-collar, we do not mean either the performer who so grotesquely burlesqued the popish conspirator, or the three unchangeables who have been dancing the same dance under different imposing titles, and doing the same thing under various high-sounding names for some five or six years last past. We have no sooner made this avowal than the public, who have hitherto been silent witnesses of the dispute, inquire what on earth it is we do mean, and, with becoming respect, we proceed to tell them. It is very well known to all playgoers and pantomime-seers that the scenes in which a theatrical clown is at the very height of his glory are those which are described in the playbills as cheesemonger's shop and crockery warehouse, or tailor's shop and Mrs. Queertable's boarding-house, or places bearing some such title, where the great fun of the thing consists in the hero's taking lodgings which he has not the slightest intention of paying for, or obtaining goods under false pretenses, or abstracting the stock-in-trade of the respectable shopkeeper next door, or robbing warehouse porters as they pass under his window, or, to shorten the catalogue, in his swindling everybody he possibly can, it only remaining to be observed that the more extensive the swindling is, and the more barefaced the impudence of the swindler, the greater the rapture and ecstasy of the audience. Now it is a most remarkable fact that precisely this sort of thing occurs in real life day after day, and nobody sees the humour of it. Let us illustrate our position by detailing the plot of this portion of the pantomime, not of the theatre, but of life. The Honourable Captain Fitzwhisker Fiercy, attended by his livery servant Duham, most respectable servant to look at, who has grown grey in the service of the captain's family, views, cheats for, and ultimately obtains possession of the unfurnished house, such a number, such a street. All the tradesmen in the neighbourhood are in agonies of competition for the captain's custom. The captain is a good-natured, kind-hearted, easy man, and to avoid being the cause of disappointment to any, he most handsomely gives orders to all. Hampers of wine, baskets of provisions, cartloads of furniture, boxes of jewellery, supplies of luxuries of all the costliest description, flock to the house of the Honourable Captain Fitzwhisker Fiercy, where they are received with the utmost readiness by the highly respectable Duham, 
while the captain himself struts and swaggers about with that compound air of conscious superiority and general bloodthirstiness which a military captain should always and does most times wear to the admiration and terror of plebeian men but the tradesmen's backs are no sooner turned than the captain with all the eccentricity of a mighty mind and assisted by the faithful duum whose devoted fidelity is not the least touching part of his character disposes of everything to great advantage for although the articles fetch small sums still they are sold considerably above cost price the cost to the captain having been nothing at all after various manoeuvres the imposture is discovered fitz fiercy and duham are recognized as confederates and the police office to which they are both taken is thronged with their dupes who can fail to recognize in this the exact counterpart of the best portion of the theatrical pantomime fitz whisker fiercy by the clown duham by the pantaloon and supernumeraries by the tradesmen the best of the joke too is that the very coal merchant who is loudest in his complaints against the person who defrauded him is the identical man who sat in the centre of the very front row of the pit last night and laughed the most boisterously at this very same thing and not so well done either talk of grimaldi we say again did grimaldi in his best days ever do anything in this way equal to da costa the mention of this latter justly celebrated clown reminds me of his last piece of humour the fraudulently obtaining certain stamped acceptances from a young gentleman in the army we had scarcely laid down our pen to contemplate for a few moments this admirable actor's performance of that exquisite practical joke then a new branch of our subject flashed suddenly upon us. So we take it up again at once. All people who have been behind the scenes, and most people who have been before them, know that in the representation of a pantomime a good many men are sent upon the stage for the express purpose of being cheated, or knocked down, or both. Now, down to a moment ago, we had never been able to understand for what possible purpose a great number of odd, lazy, large-headed men, whom one is in the habit of meeting here and there and everywhere, could ever have been created. We see it all now. They are the supernumeraries in the pantomime of life, the men who have been thrust into it with no other view than to be constantly tumbling over each other and running their heads against all sorts of strange things. We sat opposite to one of these men at a supper-table only last week. Now we think of it, he was exactly like the gentleman with the pasteboard heads and faces who do the corresponding business in the theatrical pantomimes. There was the same broad, stolid simper, the same dull, leaden eye, the same unmeaning, vacant stare, and whatever was said, or whatever was done, he always came in at precisely the wrong place or jostled against something that he had not the slightest business with. We looked at the man across the table again and again, and could not satisfy ourselves what race of beings to class him with. How very odd that this never occurred to us before! We will frankly own that we have been much troubled with the Harlequin. 
we see harlequins of so many kinds in the real living pantomime that we hardly know which to select as the proper fellow of him of the theatres at one time we were disposed to think that the harlequin was neither more nor less than a young man of family and independent of property who had run away with an opera dancer and was fooling his life and his means away in light and trivial amusements on reflection however we remembered that harlequins are occasionally guilty of witty and even clever acts and we are rather disposed to acquit our young men of family and independent property generally speaking of any such misdemeanours on a more mature consideration of the subject we have arrived at the conclusion that the harlequins of life are just ordinary men to be found in no particular walk or degree on whom a certain station or particular conjunction of circumstances confers the magic wand and this brings us to a few words on the pantomime of public and political life which we shall say at once and then conclude merely premising in this place that we decline any reference whatever to the columbine being in no wise satisfied of the nature of her connection with her party-coloured lover and not feeling by any means clear that we should be justified in introducing her to the virtuous and respectable ladies who peruse our lucubrations we take it that the commencement of a session of parliament is neither more nor less than the drawing up of the curtain for a grand comic pantomime and that his majesty's most gracious speech on the opening thereof may not be inaptly compared to the clown's opening speech of here we are my lords and gentlemen here we are appears to our mind at least to be a very good abstract of the point and meaning of the propitiatory address of the ministry when we remember how frequently this speech is made immediately after the change too the parallel is quite perfect and still more singular perhaps the cast of our political pantomime never was richer than at this day we are particularly strong in clowns and at no former time we should say have we had such astonishing tumblers or performers so ready to go through the whole of their feats for the amusement of an admiring throng their extreme readiness to exhibits indeed has given rise to some ill-natured reflections it having been objected that by exhibiting gratuitously through the country when the theatre is closed they reduce themselves to the level of mountebanks and thereby tend to degrade the respectability of the profession certainly grimaldi never did this sort of thing and though brown king and gibson have gone to the surrey in vacation time and mr c j smith has ruralized at sadler's wells we find no theatrical precedent for a general tumbling through the country except in the gentleman name unknown who threw somersets on behalf of the late mr richardson and who is no authority either because he had never been on the regular boards but laying aside this question which after all is a mere matter of taste we may reflect with pride and gratification of heart on the proficiency of our clowns as exhibited in the season night after night will they twist and tumble about till two three and four o'clock in the morning playing the strangest antics and giving each other the funniest slaps on the face that can possibly be imagined 
without evincing the smallest tokens of fatigue. The strange noises, the confusion, the shouting and roaring, amid which all this is done, too, would put to shame the most turbulent sixpenny gallery that ever yelled through a boxing night. It is especially curious to behold one of these clowns compelled to go through the most surprising contortions by the irresistible influence of the wand of office, which his leader or harlequin holds above his head. Acted upon by this wonderful charm, he will become perfectly motionless, moving neither hand, foot, nor finger, and will even lose the faculty of speech at an instant's notice, or, on the other hand, he will become all life and animation if required, pouring forth a torrent of words without sense or meaning, throwing himself into the wildest and most fantastic contortions, and even grovelling on the earth and licking up the dust. These exhibitions are more curious than pleasing. Indeed, they are rather disgusting than otherwise, except to the admirers of such things, with whom we confess we have no fellow-feeling. Strange tricks, very strange tricks, are also performed by the harlequin, who holds for the time being the magic wand which we have just mentioned. The mere waving it before a man's eyes will dispossess his brains of all the notions previously stored there, and fill it with an entirely new set of ideas. One gentle tap on the back will alter the colour of a man's coat completely, and there are some expert performers who, having this wand held first on one side and then on the other, will change from side to side, turning their coats at every evolution, with so much rapidity and dexterity, that the quickest eye can scarcely detect their motions. Occasionally the genius who confers the wand wrests it from the hand of the temporary possessor, and consigns it to some new performer, on which occasions all the characters change sides, and then the race and the hard knocks begin anew. We might have extended this chapter to a much greater length. We might have carried the comparison into the liberal professions. We might have shown, as was in fact our original purpose, that each is in itself a little pantomime, with scenes and characters of its own, complete. But as we fear we have been quite lengthy enough already, we shall leave this chapter just where it is. A gentleman, not altogether unknown as a dramatic poet, wrote thus a year or two ago. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. And we, tracking out his footsteps to a scarcely worth mentioning little distance of a few millions of leagues behind, ventured to add, by way of a new reading, that he meant a pantomime, and that we all are actors in the pantomime of life. End of Part 4